Welcome, everybody, back to another episode of the Hunt Together Talk podcast, sponsored by Hunt to Eat and Filson. I'm your host, Hank Shaw, and today we are going to talk about sooty grouse. Sooty as in, like, charcoal soot, yeah. This is the grouse that lives from southeast Alaska all the way down to where I live in the Sierra Nevada of California. It is a solitary grouse, very difficult to hunt, and it often inhabits very, very tall, tall timber with very wet, very dense kind of thing. Think, think Jurassic Park, only cooler. They are a fascinating species to hunt, and there are all kinds of opportunities to chase this wily bird. That, that is, I am happy to say, one of the greatest birds at the table in all of North America. So you're not going to want to miss this episode. I am talking with two members of the Alaska Department of Fish and Game who are experts at this particular grouse. And we're going to talk not only about regular hunting for them, which is to say in the fall, but also this unusual and unique opportunity to hunt sooty grouse in the spring in southeast Alaska. And that season is coming up very, very soon. So without further ado, we'll take it away. Welcome, Forrest Bowers and Rick Merzon. This is Hank Shaw from the Hunt Gather Talk podcast. And I am super stoked to talk to some sooty grouse hunters, which is it's a bizarre phrase because it sounds like you guys are actually sooty, uh, but it, we're talking about what most of the country calls a blue grouse, but the splitters won in this one, and we're going to talk about that in a minute. But what we're talking about is the upland grouse of the Pacific Coast. It really ranges from Alaska to California, and you guys are both working for the Alaska Department of Fish and Game, right? That's right. That's correct. Yeah, I'm in I'm in Juneau, Alaska. Are you both in Juneau or? I'm in I'm based in Palmer. Where's Palmer? Uh, it's about 50 minutes north of Anchorage. Yeah, right ah. south central Alaska. Is that sort of the Matsu? It is the Matsu indeed. So, do you have sooty grouse up uh, up as far as you, or do they stay in the southeast? They are restricted to southeast. Essentially, everything. Um, south of about Glacier Bay National Park, which many of your listeners might be able to relate to, uh, which is northern southeast Alaska, uh, and then extend throughout most of uh, southeast Alaska. And it's interestingly, well, and we'll get into it in a bit, uh, the, the native grouse were the, the what, we all, what I actually genuinely thought were duskies in the Sierra Nevada, California, are actually cities. Right. Yeah. Based on the somewhat recent delineation of the two species. Uh, yeah, that's that's correct. Tell me a little bit about your background with this particular species. I know, Forrest, you you're, uh, you hunt them quite a bit, and uh, Rick, you've hunted them too, right? I have quite a bit also. Mm-hmm. So, Forrest, let's start with you. Sure. Well, I so I, I live in Juneau, Alaska, and I actually work for the Division of Commercial Fisheries with the Department of Fishing Game, so I'm I'm not grouse. City grouse are not part of my job, um, but they certainly are one of my passions. And unfortunately, in Juneau, we we are in you know the heart of city grouse country in Southeast. Um, we have some tremendous grouse hunting opportunity here, and so uh, I got into grouse hunting about 10 years ago city grouse hunting about 10 years ago and you know it's just something i look i look forward to every year it's a spring ritual and uh it's really one of my favorite times to be out in the woods 
the brush hasn't grown up yet and um you know it's it's just a great time to get out and see some places that you'd otherwise never visit and they're really good eating so yes this i know (laughs) so that's the the big payoff so rick do you come all the way down from uh from the matsu to hunt them in southeast or do you hunt them somewhere else yeah no i actually uh so I, I share Forrest's passion for these birds. It's a it's a really unique, um, interesting bird to hunt and to uh, you know research and do uh, work on. My my job with fishing game actually does um, tie directly into sooty grouse. I'm the small game program coordinator for the Alaska Department of Fishing Game, and so our program has statewide responsibilities. So despite the fact that I'm based in South Central. I do spend a fair bit of my springtime, as as Forrest was just pointing out, in Southeast. We travel throughout Southeast, and we do spring breeding surveys for them. And um, in the past, I've I've gone down there, and if I have time, um, enjoy hunting them in, in the springtime when they're hooting. And I I definitely like Forrest said, it's a it's a great time of year to get out, and uh, you know after a long dark winter and um, it's a really neat time to see the landscape come alive and, uh, you know, then the, get to experience the sooty grouse hooting. Um, it's a really neat, neat time of year and a really interesting bird. Well, let's start with the bird itself. So most of us know these grouses. They're, they're, in general, they're the large western white meat grouse from about the Rockies all the way to where you guys are in Alaska and all the way down to about northern Arizona uh, New Mexico kind of area. As far as I know, they do not live in Mexico anywhere. You know, officially the split was in 2006, but it's really kind of a re-split because I have some very, very old books about game birds of the Pacific Coast and of, of Western North America, and they, they, they've they split them sort of generically as far back as 1910 and 1890 and You'll see, oh, well, the sooty grouse are the grouse of the coast, and the dusky grouse are the ones in the interior, and da-da-da. So there's been this kind of splitter lumper thing going for quite some time, and, and I'm not entirely sure why the the what settled it, and maybe you guys can shed some light on it. Yeah, I can I can take a first stab. Forrest might have some, some uh, things to add, too, but... Um... It's an interesting back and forth, like you said, even in Sibley's uh, bird identification guide, which is a widely known birding uh, guide, even back in the late 90 edition that I have, he recognized the difference between sooties and, and duskies, even though they were officially called blue grouse in his book uh, that was before the split officially. Um, really, the, the most recent research that settled the issue was George Bearclaw back in 2004, along with a couple other researchers, did a pretty large, extensive uh, tissue sampling collection, and as, as well as looking at some other morphological features and behavioral features. But it was really the genetic uh, study that revealed that coastal birds really are somewhat unique from the interior birds. It gets a little bit muddled as you travel north of the lower 48 Canada border because um, one of the key distinctions that they used was uh, the the morphological characteristics. And one of the primary morphological characteristics they used was the apteria, which is that featherless patch uh, immediately below the, well, sort of along the neck. Oh, those throat sacs. 
right, the throat sacs that males often uh, inflate to some degree when they're hooting in the spring. And the the interior birds are largely believed to be sort of a reddish uh, pink color, where the coastal birds, particularly in Washington, Oregon, and Northern California, have a yellow apteria. When you look at all the birds that I've harvested, and, and I'm sure Forrest will chime in here too, but uh, all the birds I've observed while out doing spring breeding surveys as well, all have pink apteria. So it, it I, I've talked to George Bearclaw and I've talked to others that are familiar with the research that was done. And they do admit that the um, when you get up to the very northern extent of their range, um, north of the Queen Charlotte Islands, things do get a little bit muddled. Uh, but nonetheless, that, that was largely... The, the George Bearclaw study was really the one in 04 that led to the most recent split. Do we know if they can interbreed or not? Uh, that is a good question. And I actually asked that question of George uh, when I spoke to him a few years back and where they, so the, the dividing line, particularly north of the Canada lower 48 border is largely believed to be the coast range mountains, which are very high uh, mountain range that's largely glacial covered and frankly doesn't offer a lot of um, opportunities for coastal birds to to move to more interior regions with the exception of a few major river valleys and it's believed in those scenarios in major river valleys where there is forested habitat where birds could theoretically move between you know quote unquote the interior and the coast that there may be some interbreeding, uh, but to what degree it's largely unknown. And, and I think that the, because the, the species is a relatively sedentary species, meaning they, you know, they're not making these large movements like ptarmigan and other upland game birds, um, that the, the rate of interbreeding is probably fairly, fairly low. Hmm. Well, and, and isn't one of the characteristics the, um, the eye comb as well, um, that yellow or bright fleshy patch above the eye and around Juno here, we pretty much only see the yellow comb or, or eye patch there. And I'm not sure if comb is actually the right word for it, but it's like a big old eyebrow. Yeah. Big, big fleshy eyebrow. Yeah. And, um, we only see yellow around here, at least in my experience, but I believe duskies with duskies, that's red as well, isn't it? It's definitely red on the Rocky Mountain birds. Yeah, yeah, and then also the the call is different. I mean, the 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 duskies they sound different when they hoot than than sooty grouse. That's and, what I've heard. I've, the other thing yeah. I've hear, heard is that the sooties when they hoot, it's so much louder than a than a dusky. So I mean, it could just be a mm-hmm. function of the fact that they're standing way the hell up in the tree, where right. the, the duskies are hanging out on the ground like all the other grouse yeah and i you know i've only i have limited experience with duskies but i i do remember um i was actually in central washington and i heard it was in may and i i heard a bird hooting and i'm like that's a grouse but it didn't sound like the grouse that we have here the city grouse and it sounds like central washington could be either species so it might have just been a, f- a function of where this bird was at you know there were was kind of in a high uh, prairie area you know in some some canyons so no trees around to speak of 
I've also read that typically, now, now you guys may know better than me, but typically the sooties have 18 tail feathers and duskies have 20. So that sounds pretty specific, but I'm not really familiar with numbers of tail feathers on birds in the sense that like, oh, well, you know, if it's got 19, well, we'd really, you know, I don't know if it's a big <laughs> deal or not. Or like if you shoot 12 birds, do they all have 18 or is there, yeah, I, I, I don't know. I mean, well, and I think from, from my standpoint, sort of a more practical morphological characteristics from a hunter's perspective would be looking at the gray terminal tail band on a, on a bird the coastal birds tend to have a larger, uh, wider, I should say, gray terminal tail band, and the interior or you know, quote unquote, duskies tend to have no terminal tail band at all, or a very, very narrow. Um, I mean, just the very, very tips of the tail feathers are are colored gray. So I think that's a more practical uh, identifier, especially regarding morphological characteristics of the tail. Well, and yeah. there's of course the elephant in the room, right? So sooty grouse are called sooty grouse because they're they're dark like soot, and duskies are a light gray. Mm-hmm. Yeah, the birds we see around here, that terminal tail band is, you know, about three quarters of an inch wide, five eighths, three quarters of an inch wide, and typically the yeah the birds are very very dark, approaching black, you know, along their yeah. saddle. Well, I mean literally charcoal, like charcoal yeah. color. Yeah, charcoal exactly. Whereas the, I mean, I hunt duskies in Utah and Colorado and places like that quite a bit, and they're typically, they're kind of like like Western gray squirrel color, like a, a cool gray. Mm-hmm. So they're both really big, right? So as far as I know, they they can both get up to about four pounds. That's on the large side. Usually, um, all the whole birds I've weighed are, are generally in the neighborhood of three to three and a half. But I mean, they can make it to four, but that's a that's a pretty big bird. Okay, so maybe the interior duskies are bigger then because the it's it's not uncommon to to shoot big boomers in Utah or Colorado that like well that's a big ass grouse and it's you weigh it up and it's all of four pounds. Mm. You know there's wow. a uh, there's a, uh, a recipe on my website called uh, grouse savan. It's basically like a grouse stew, and I fed a bunch of people with one single big old grouse, and it was the size of a it was the size of a roaster chicken. I mean, it was plucked and gutted and ready to rock. It was three pounds. They're they're impressive when you know I, I pluck all of my birds, and I mean the big bird it comes close to filling a, a dinner plate. You know, when they're uh, they're impressive. Yeah. Hunt to Eat is a proud sponsor of this podcast, which makes sense because I own and wear a lot of their shirts. When you reach into your drawer to grab a shirt to wear to a barbecue or a conservation event, you always grab the same one, right? Well, you are about to find your new favorite tea. Head over to hunttoeat.com and check out their new Upland collection of t-shirts for all you pheasant, quail, grouse, and other Upland hunters. Also, be sure to check out the Hunter Angler Gardener Cook Collection. I've got several t-shirts that I designed in conjunction with the folks at Hunt to Eat, including a fantastic shirt with the logo. Be sure to use promo code HANK10 for 10% off your order when you order online. Again, that is Hunt to Eat, and I am happy to have them as a sponsor for the podcast. Thanks. So habitat-wise, so I think the habitat is also a very a distinction between the cities and the, and the duskies as well. I mean, for, let me start with my, my birds. So I live in Northern California and 
until recently, it was un- I was under the impression that all of the grouse in the Sierra Nevada, which is right up the street from me, were duskies because I had always heard that the sooties were a bird of the coastal range, and so it's got to be kind of wet in that. If you picture in your in your mind's eye, if you're listening to this, the the wet, ferny like imagine cool Jurassic Park, and that's basically where where sooties live. Where the duskies, imagine any scene in the Sierra Nevadas, the Rockies, or the Wasatch, or something like that. Some kind of typical interior, semi dry. Uh, conifer forests. They both dig conifers. So, but apparently we have the most inland species of sooties uh, in the world, and they are fiendishly difficult to hunt in the Sierra Nevadas. Fiendishly, like legendarily, like if you know someone who has shot a grouse in the Sierra Nevada, like that's you tip your cap. Like I, I've shot exactly one. And I try go after them a lot. Their season's very short. I I hear the best spots for them are way up north, like north of the Lassen Lassen volcano. And but in my area, sort of Placer, El Dorado, Yellowstone, uh, not Yellowstone, Yosemite, kind of the the middle range of the Sierra Nevada. It, it's 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 all mountain quail. It's not it's not city grouse. So for me. This particular grouse is something that you're really only going to see if you go to Mendocino or Humboldt or Del Norte or someplace like that. And then all the way up into – I think they become more and more common as we get closer to where you guys live. Is that your understanding? What, what makes them so difficult to hunt in your area? Is it just the, the limited numbers? They're just yeah. hard to find? Yeah. There's just There aren't any. There just aren't yeah. any. I mean, we, yeah. you, you can, you can find little teeny patches of them, mm-hmm. and I'll, I hear guys will run into it. Like if you, if you're deer hunting is very difficult in the Sierra Nevada, so typically if you're there for deer season, you're gonna hunt like seven days to find trying to find your deer, and mm-hmm. typically a guy doing that will run across a grouse or two. But okay. that is a very different thing from saying I'm going to go grouse hunting and I have a very good chance of shooting grouse today. Mm-hmm. Well, I, around Juno, and I and I think you know Rick probably has a better idea of this because of you know his knowledge doing survey work around Southeast Alaska. But my my experience is that grouse are more abundant in Southeast um, near the mainland. So the further out towards the coast you get, uh, you know, say Sitka that area, less common. In fact, for, from what I people who live in Sitka tell me, grouse, city grouse are fairly rare over there. But here in the Juneau area, and I think around Ketchikan, you know, closer to the mainland, they're they're very abundant. In fact, where my office is, I'm I'm pretty close to some large mountains, and in the spring, you know, I can if the traffic's not too loud, I can often hear a bird hooting from my office parking lot. So <laughs> well, every yeah. place is close to mountains in Juneau. Correct. Yes. <laughs> so they generally like. Uh, is there a tree type that they like more than others? Well, I, I I tend to see them, you know, in large trees typically. You know, if I'm if I'm hunting a bird, a specific bird, and I I get into an area where I think I'm close, I'll start looking, you know, in the larger trees in that area first, but. I see them both in in spruce and hemlock trees, 
but in my experience, they typically are eating hemlock needles, you know, more than spruce needles. I wanted to get into that. So talk to me about what they eat. I'm always fascinated by what any given game animal eats because as a chef, I like to figure out, well, what does it eat? And then is what it e- is what it eats edible to us? And if it is, what can I do with that in terms of a, of a dish on a, on a plate? Because I've, I've always found that whatever is in the environment of whatever it is that you're chasing, as long as it's edible, of course, goes well in a plate of food. You know, so we in an earlier episode, we talked about rose hips and hawthorn and mushrooms with prairie grouse as being a very, very good natural combinations. And other than when it gets cold and nasty, where they eat needles and catkins, they basically effectively become spruce grouse at that point, I would imagine. What do sooty grouse like to eat when it's nice out? I think it really depends on the time of year. Um, you know, the, the, the I'll explain just kind of one challenge in, in describing that from a hunter's perspective, because in, in Alaska, we have very, very long season dates uh, for this critter. And based on all of the harvest management and monitoring that we've done, about 90% of the harvest, well, well, I should back up, the season in Alaska runs from August 10th to May 15th. So it's a very, very long season. And a lot of, of your listeners might be shocked by that. One saving grace we have in administering a long season like that is that about 90% of the harvest occurs in about a three to four week period at the very end of the season when the when the males specifically are hooting. Uh, deer hunters do harvest them for sure in the fall when they go out deer hunting throughout Southeast. But there aren't all that many people that specifically target them in the fall. So the majority of folks wait until the spring and, you know, it's easier to locate bird. Well, I should quote unquote easier. It's not easy. It's not, it's never easy to locate a sooty grouse, but it's um, you have a a distinct call that you can walk in on in the spring versus in the fall. So, you know, eating a bird harvested in the fall I think they, they're largely coming off of their summer diet, which is uh, primarily invertebrates, uh, largely you know aerial insects, uh, and, and the berry crop that can be pretty abundant uh, throughout Southeast. Mm-hmm. When folks are going out in the spring harvesting birds, they've been consuming spruce and hemlock needles largely for you know four or five months, um, almost exclusively, so the the birds can taste different depending on the time of year, the time of the season that they're harvested. I've noticed that that spruce grass are exactly like that as well. So I've hunted spruces way up in the boreal forests of Canada, and we've shot them right in the beginning of the season in September, and they were amazing. They were amazing. I mean, the, the flavor was phenomenal. The meat was kind of pink. It wasn't, it was neither dark nor light. And I mean, I'd shoot them all day long. I mean, the bag limit's low because you know they're not real bright birds. <laughs> they, right. they call them full hands for a reason. <laughs> like, hands, hey, why'd, yeah. you, why'd you shoot Louie? Why I should? I, maybe I should fly. Oh, oh, you shot me too. And, <laughs> and so, I mean, for for kindness' sake, we have low bag limits. But later, you know, when there's been a bunch of snow on the ground, they get darker and they they get. You know, critics will say they taste like turpentine, but I don't I don't really I won't go that far. I'll say there's there's a certain piney thing that you're not going to get rid of and you might as well just go with at that point. And are are the spring hooters the same way? 
In my experience, they're not. You know, I've um, I've also hunted spruce grouse in the interior of Alaska, and have have experienced that difference in flavor, the you know seasonal difference in flavor, and I haven't noticed that with city grouse at all. I, I hunt, you know, as, as Rick said, you know, I hunt primarily in the spring. My best hunting is typically, you know, right around the end of April or first part of May. And like I said, all the all the birds I've killed have had their have been full of uh, of needles. You know, that's what's in their crop. And there's there's no um, you know evergreen type flavor at all. Hmm. So what about I, you, Rick? I, uh, yeah, I, I agree. I, I, the birds I've harvested in the spring are delicious. Uh, the the meat is um, you know it's not quite as light as a rough grouse, for example, but um, boy, they're, they're awfully tasty. And I've harvested a lot of living more in South central where our spruce grouse populations are quite abundant. And frankly, it's the predominant grouse species where I live. I, I would much prefer sooty grouse over a spruce grouse most of the year, given the choice. That's fascinating. There has to be something chemical going on because the, well, if they have a very similar diet, then oh here's a question so if you've opened up i've never opened them up side by side and i know this is i know gizzard size is very individual um mm-hmm. i know that sage grouse really don't have a gizzard because all they eat is sage leaves they, they don't actually have a gizzard they have this weird sort of fleshy thing that's not a gizzard and it. it's not a stomach it's just something different um i'm wondering what you normally see in sooties versus spruces well i'm, I'm glad you you asked that because I keep all the gizzards from my sooty grouse and they're, they're large. They're about the size of a golf ball, maybe, you know, give or take. And they always have, um, white quartz type stones. They're there. That's the, you know, the grinding material. It's always these white quartz stones and yeah. And, and then it's just ground ground needles is what I see, but that's striking. I've, Every bird I've opened up has had those white quartz stones in the gizzard. And you ever find gold? Uh, no. <laughs> but I mean, uh, the reason no. I ask that is because yeah. a buddy of mine in gold country yeah. here in California, in Amador County, shot mm-hmm. a wild turkey that had a gold nugget in its gizzard. Wow. <laughs> Isn't that crazy? That's wild. Yeah. Well, that's a shiny so thing. I, if I'm hunting a, a specific bird, you know, it, I'll, I'll often keep note of where I see running water, you know, because those birds are are most likely picking that that quartz up along the creek beds. You know, the, the rest of the, for the most part, the understory is covered with vegetation, so that that's really the only place they could be getting those 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 stones. Isn't there running water pretty much everywhere in Southeast though? Well, that's true. <laughs> You know, you got to hunt water in Southeast. That's the most important thing. Like, really? <laughs> Thanks. <laughs> really? Like, this is not Nevada. That's right. As you guys probably already know, I'm a big fan of Filson gear. I've been wearing it for more than 25 years, long before I had a podcast or a website or anything like that. The reason I always buy it is because you buy it once and you never need to buy it again. It is the toughest, longest lasting stuff there is. And this is one of the things I've always loved about them. It's their commitment to make best-in-class gear for any condition, from hunting and fishing gear to rainwear or even stuff that you wear to work. 
Their winter sale just ended, but Filson just received all of their new products that are perfect for this wet, cold, and muddy time of year that we're about to get into. Dry bags, rain pants, three-layer seam-sealed rain jackets that are perfect for any sort of wet and muddy weather. Filson was founded in Seattle, Washington in 1897 when they started outfitting prospectors for the Klondike Gold Rush. And ever since then, they've been committed to making the toughest, roughest stuff there is. There's a reason why their slogan is, Filson, you might as well have the best. I've been wearing it for almost 30 years, and I hope you consider putting a pair on yourself. Thanks. All right. So I definitely, definitely, definitely want to talk about this weird, freaky, you've mentioned it a couple times before, the only spring grouse hunting in the United States is in Alaska. And it's, it's crazy. Like it's, it, when I first heard about it some years ago and, uh, and then I think, uh, my colleague Steve Ranella did a show about it as well. Like what you can, you, what, what just like, it just blew every upland bird hunters mind off our shoulders. Like what the heck? So tell me why we're allowed to do it and be Walk me just just paint a, an audio picture of of a of a spring hooter hunt because I think a lot of people are really really stoked to to hear about that. Well, I can certainly uh, talk about the regulation side of it and and even a little bit about the hunt itself, but I think Forrest probably has far more experience actually hunting them than I do, so I may let him take that one. But I'll I'll take a stab at the regulatory question. So um, Alaska in general is privileged in having very liberal season dates and in many cases bag limits for virtually all of our upland game birds, sooty grouse included. Um, the challenge, if you've ever hunted in Southeast, deer hunted, or just simply hiked in Southeast, you very quickly realize, particularly when you try to get off trail, that it is a reasonably inhospitable, I would argue quite inhospitable place to hike. <laughs> it's uh, it's very wet, as we've alluded to in the past, almost every all months of the year, it's very wet. Um, there's a tremendous amount of understory vegetation that grabs your feet. There's a lot of windfall. There's very tall trees, very steep country, a lot of exposed rock. Um, it is it is very unforgiving country. And in Southeast, for for those that aren't familiar with the geography of Southeast, it's there's a sliver of mainland along the eastern portion of of Southeast Alaska. But most of it is dotted with a, a whole series of small to relatively large islands. It's all very heavily forested. Uh, there aren't, well, there are, but very few uh, big meadows where it affords relatively easy walking. There's an ex- excessively limited road system, largely restricted to um, the big cities. There are some logging roads that can be walked, but invariably, sooty grouse are, are hooting and are huntable off of those logging roads. So even if you walk old logging roads, you're, you're going to find yourself in uh, past clear cuts or uh, some very inhospitable country. I guess what I'm, I'm getting at is that the liberal season dates and bag limits that we have in Southeast, uh, particularly coupled with the low human population and, and subsequently low hunter density relative to other parts of this country, uh, we can get away with uh, those that management scheme, and we our, our small game program monitors the both the harvest and the abundance of of various populations throughout Southeast Alaska very very closely um, for that reason. Uh, 
particularly because males are being harvested, almost exclusively males are being harvested in the spring. People do harvest females, but really it's the males that hoot and that bring a hunter off of a road or trail into the woods to try to locate that, that individual. So we, we can get away um, with a relatively, well, very liberal uh, season date uh, duration. What's the bag limit? It's five per day. Okay. And, you know, yes, there are absolutely hunters that harvest five birds per day, uh, particularly in areas that have pretty high densities of birds. Um, it can be challenging. I mean, I'm, I'm, I don't consider myself a, a couch potato or a slouch by any stretch, but boy, you know, to, to even get two or three birds in your bag in a day is a pretty darn good day. You're, you're putting a lot of miles, tough miles on your boots and, you know, hiking through devil's club, which is a very, very thorny head high plant that, that just loves to whip around and hit you in, in the arm or the legs. Um, you know, real steep, wet country that you're slipping and sliding on. And, uh, it's, it's not easy hunting for, for anyone that's done it. It's like our, our, here in California, we have a 20 snow goose limit every day. Lots of luck, lots of luck. Like I know exactly one person who shot 20 snow geese in one day. Right. And what we found doing uh, statewide hunter surveys in Alaska, despite the, the stories that you hear in the, the magazine articles that you read, on average, uh, very few people uh, even come close to their daily bag limit on average. In general, uh, the majority of hunters on average come back with one or maybe two birds. And, and I'm talking not only sooty grouse, but ptarmigan, spruce grouse, rough grouse. Um, you know, so generally speaking, despite the fact that we have fairly liberal bag limits, um, in general, very, very few hunters even approach that bag limit. But you know, there's this one dude out there who's like, I am the grouse whisperer. Well, exactly. <laughs> and that's exactly what we found is that, you know, less than 10% of the hunting population that calls themselves dedicated grouse hunters actually achieve even close to a daily bag limit every time they go out. It's a hard, I mean, it's hard with any upland bird. Like I've, I've hunted pretty much every upland bird in North America. And I mean, you think about the quail, like, okay, well, sure. You can shoot lots of quail. Good luck. Limits 15. And have I shot a limit? Yes, but it's not that easy. And it's, it's kind of commensurate commensurate. I mean, the only actual upland bird that I have routinely shot limits of like routinely are pheasants. Like Mm -hmm. I've, I've hunted three straight days and shot limits all three days and, yeah, so that, that that might be the exception to the rule, but you know, think of that chuckers in Nevada or mountain quail or you know, I've shot I've shot actually limits of dusky grouse in Utah, but still, it's not every day. Right. Yeah. So, Hank, one you know, your your listeners might also be surprised to know that you know, sooty grouse hunting is not traditional upland hunting in that you're not wing shooting. You're generally shooting uh, a bird that's sitting in a tree perched in a tree or on the ground you know it's it's and and most people hunt with a 22 a rifle mm-hmm. um welcome to ground pound town yeah, <laughs> there are, the, yeah there are a few people that that hunt with shotguns but they're they're not wing shooting for the most part i mean i i don't know anyone who has shot a flying sooty grouse i'm sure people have 
I'm sure people have, but no, none of my friends or, uh, you know, people that I've talked with have, have reported doing that. And, so it's and, funny that you should mention this yeah. because uh, I just like just before we got on the, this recording, I I wrote down the story of my chachalaca hunt. And okay. so I hunted chachalacas on the Mexican border in, near Brownsville, Texas. And it, too, is a is a tree dwelling upland bird. Uh, you know, its nickname is the Mexican tree pheasant. And. Uh, yes, you can shoot them in the air. I mean, it happens once in a while when you when you catch one a group. They usually travel in little groups, and they would fly from one impenetrable part of the brush to another impenetrable part of the brush, and you can sometimes intercept them there. But typically, virtually everybody I've talked to who has actually killed one of these things, it's like yeah, you just kind of whack them in trees, and it's just mm-hmm. it's not exactly the the beautiful image of the 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 bird rising over a point that that a lot of upland hunters really live for. And it, and it, it, it too is also not really a dog thing. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Do you I, use I dogs bring, at all? I, so I, I have uh, a chocolate lab, a great retriever that comes hunting with me. Mostly she's out for the hike and a dog can sometimes be useful. If you uh, have a bird that falls on a steep slope and rolls or you wound a bird and it's it's moving on the ground. The dog can be helpful in, in locating birds in that situation. Sometimes you'll you will shoot a bird that, that lands on a steep slope and they roll or land in a hole, end up under a log. You can usually follow the you know trail of feathers pretty easily and, and locate that bird, but the dog can expedite that process. And certainly if you have a bird that's wounded and running on the ground the dog is is helpful in that regard but for the most part you know you're you're standing near the tree where the bird is perched and you know you make a good shot and the bird lands sometimes almost at your feet so walk me so so take the me and the listeners through like so it's sometime in april Mm-hmm. What does it look like? What does it sound like? What does it smell like? What is your, you know, you get up in the morning, you're like, you know what, I'm going to try and get some grouse today. What's Take me through that day. Well, you know, in recent years, we've had relatively little snow in southeast Alaska in the spring, so it's it's made for some great grouse hunting conditions. So you will start out early in the morning as the sun's coming up, and I, I typically will begin my hunt off of an established trail. I often start seeing birds uh, at about a thousand feet elevation, but I'll, I'll hear them much sooner than that. And so this, you'll hear this, the hoot, and it's a, a deep sound that reverberates throughout the woods. And it, it almost sounds like, you know, a person blowing across the top of a, a bottle. And it's about five or six notes, you know, five or six beats typically. And you just, you start following that sound and eventually you'll, you'll get to a point where you know that the bird is close. You know, you, you've maybe identified four or five, six trees and it's in one of those trees. And so I, I hunt with a, a pair of compact binoculars. I, I have some, some Leica eight by 20 shirt pocket binoculars that I bring and I'll just start scanning uh, the branches, start at the tops of the trees and work my way out each branch and 
walk around the trees, try to gain elevation to look into the tree instead of looking up. And eventually, you know, you'll, you'll locate the bird. I've spent an hour or more looking for a single bird. And Is it hooting point, the whole time? Hooting the whole time. Yep. Might stop, you know, for, you know, five minutes, but we'll start up again and it's hooting the whole time. And, and sometimes you feel, you know, you feel like, how, why is it taking me this long to see the bird? It's right there. You know, when you finally spot it, they're really well camouflaged. And, and then at that point, you know, the, the shot is almost kind of anticlimactic. I, I assume you go for headshots only, yeah? Yeah, I, I shoot for um, kind of a neck shot. It's a little gotcha. bit bigger target. Yeah. And, you know, the head is the part of the bird that's moving around the most. So I, I, I sort of shoot for the, the base of the neck and then I don't don't lose any meat and it's a it's a lethal shot. Gotcha. You know, they, they are such a, a large bird that if you can make a shot, you know, that you think you're uh, going to hit a vital organ and it just passes through the breast meat and the bird flies away, you know, so that's the situation I try to avoid. Yeah, really, that's no good. That's like yeah. I, I, all the stories you hear about guys who bow hunt turkeys and see a turkey flying away with its arrow in it. Yeah, which yeah. nobody wants. Bad, to see. bad feeling, right? It's interesting when I've been sooty grouse hunting. Uh, you know when you're really close to the bird because this sounds kind of goofy to say, and particularly to your listeners that may have never experienced this, but you literally can feel the who feel it best. <laughs> Um, I mean, when it, it's almost like walking into a, a symphony where you can feel the bass drum in your chest, and it's it's a very similar feeling. You think you're hiking along, and the hooting is getting a little bit louder, a little bit louder. First, your breathing is getting heavier and heavier because you're generally hiking uphill, and you think, oh man, I, I just don't know if I'm getting any closer. And you you know you'll you'll hike another 20 feet up the hill, and all of a sudden, boom! I mean, you, you feel this reverberation in your chest, and you think, okay. I am within, you know, one or two trees of this bird. Granted, it might be a hundred feet over my head, but I am very close. Interesting. Mm-hmm. So is it usually kind of, a, I'm imagining everything is green, everything is wet. You know, there's probably bits of snow here and there. Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, spring is a really wonderful time in Southeast Alaska to be outside. April and May are generally some of our drier months. So we, you know, you can have some some really wonderful dry weather uh, when you're out bird hunting. I, I I don't hunt if it's raining hard, just because it's it's loud in the woods then, and it's hard to hear the birds hooting. So I I, I try to avoid you know heavy rain. But yeah, the the ground is often damp. The brushes is wet. I wear gaiters and that's that's one of my key pieces of equipment, gaiters. The other piece of key equipment are uh, heavy leather gloves because of the Devil's Club. Devil's Club has this, you know, really aggressive thorns and so heavy leather gloves, the binoculars, gaiters. I'll sometimes carry some micro spikes if I get into some frozen ground, steep ground. What are micro spikes? Just like um, sort of mini crampons that I can slip onto my boots. Gotcha. Yeah. Snowshoes. You know, if, if we do have a lot of snow, I, I will bring snowshoes. You know, like I said, I, I usually start to see birds at about a thousand feet elevation, give or take. And so most of my hunting is between, you know, one and two thousand feet elevation. 
usually if I <clears throat> if I hear a bird and I start to look around, I'll look for uh, kind of cliff edge type terrain. Uh, that that's often where I'll, I'll find birds is along the edge of a break or a, a kind of a cliff edge for whatever reason. Great. <laughs> so that it's, yeah, they, so they fall a thousand feet down like a clip. Oh, yeah. Well. <laughs> I mean, they, it's very common, you know, if, if you're, you're hunting a specific bird um, and you're hiking up and you start, you see like, Oh, there's even a small um, cliff edge or drop. I bet he's on there somewhere, you know, and that nine times out of 10, that's where they're at. What's really interesting that, I've noticed as a biologist actually trying to sort of record biological observations of these critters is we've been doing spring breeding surveys now for a number of years down in Southeast and in Juneau where forest lives and the forest would be interesting to get your perspective on this as well. Um, But we, so when we do these spring breeding surveys, we have these set routes that we walk and we listen at listening posts every half mile, much like a rough grouse drummer survey, if, if listeners are familiar. It's a similar survey design. Anyway, what we've noticed over the years uh, with this species is that there are certain uh, places that we consistently, year in, year out, are hearing birds. And it's a specific tree. And even within that tree, it's a specific branch or cluster of branches. Uh, And these birds are not long-lived species. It's not a long-lived species. These are, you know, at the most three maybe four-year-old birds and we've been we've been doing spring breeding surveys now well longer than that um so these are multi-generational observations of sooty grouse and yet they seem to be using the exact same acoustic platform and that's the only explanation i have is that there's got to be some acoustic advantage to some of these these hooting posts that broadcasts into the broader, deeper valley below, uh, seemingly to attract a, a female. But mm-hmm. like Forrest was saying, it, it, oftentimes these are on cliff edges or at the top of a, of a 15, 20-foot cliff with a little scraggly spruce. They don't, exactly. always, they don't always occur in these very tall rainforest, typical rainforest kind of spruce trees that are 150 feet tall. Sometimes they're in six, seven, eight foot tall spruce that are right up near tree line, but hanging over a, a 15, even 30 foot cliff, looking down into a big broad valley. And boy, every year there are birds in certain acoustic spots. That's interesting because yeah, grouse do the same thing. There are, there are drumming logs in the East Coast and in the Midwest that are 100 years old. Right. Yeah, and that's a, that's a great point, Rick. I mean, when you're in that, you know, a thousand to 1500 foot elevation range, those are the, you're in the big timber then. And so there, the birds will often be in the large trees, you know, up quite high. But as you, yeah, as you approach tree lining, start to get up near the Alpine, you get into these scraggly windblown trees. And yeah, sometimes the birds are, are in a, a relatively small tree, uh, quite visible, but often on a cliff edge. And you know, before I shoot shoot a bird, I'll think about where it might land and make sure it's recoverable. Oh, it's a plus. Yeah, yeah. And, and that's another point that plays into our regulations, yeah. too, is that, you know, you can, you can be hiking down a very popular trail that's a mile from downtown Juneau, 
looking at cruise ships and you're hearing uh, sooty grouse all around you, and there are some that might only be, you know, 200 yards above you up the hill on the off the trail, and you think, oh man, that's going to be so easy to go get. Yet when you attempt to actually go into that bird, you know, you're you're 30 feet off the trail, and you realize there's no way you're ever going to get close to that bird. Certainly uh, close enough to take a, an ethical shot. One thing I wanted to ask you about, Rick, on the surveys that you've done, do you have you noticed a difference in the the hoot pattern for a bird that's on the ground versus a bird that's in a tree? So my in my experience, a bird that's on the ground, a male that's hooting on the ground, will only hoot once, just a single note. And so when I when I hear that pattern, I'll start looking for birds that are on the ground. But if a bird's in the tree, it'll often be, you know, f- like five or six notes to the hoot. Does that make sense of you? Yeah, that? interesting. Yeah, no, in, in southeast, I, I mean, excuse me, down in Petersburg, where we do surveys, I've seen a lot more males on the ground. Just the, the densities seem to be a little bit higher on some of those really islands off of uh, Mitkoff and Petersburg area. Um, and, and I think those birds are simply forced to less desirable hooting locations, which presumably are the ground. Um, but I have noticed that also that the hoot pattern does change. I haven't necessarily noticed it's just one hoot, but it, it, um, it is definitely different because the typical, the stereotypical hoot is a series of five, um, sort of increasing in volume notes, um, mm-hmm. Yeah, no, it, 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 there is something to that. I've noticed that too. Yeah. And often, you know, when I, if I see a, a male on the ground, the, there frequently will be a, a female grouse nearby. You know, right, because she's brought him down. Right. Yeah, I don't, I don't see a lot of female grouse, you know, in a, in a season where I might get myself onto, you know, 20 birds, I, I might see two females, you know, hmm. that's, that's my experience anyway, it, you know, and sometimes I'll go a season without ever seeing a female. So yeah. gear wise, other than gaiters and I imagine good hiking boots and mm-hmm. I would imagine, I mean, that sounds like it's tailor made for, for tin cloth. You know, I've got a yeah. pair of tin cloth chaps and, and a tin cloth cruiser jacket, which mm-hmm. is, seems like it would be perfect against that devil's club. By the way, do you know that you can pickle the devil's club buds and they're amazing hmm. wow i learned it I from a that. i learned it from a friend of mine in, in juno as a matter of fact she gave me uh she gave me a jar of them and they were fantastic hmm. cool that might be a little bit before season but it's just it's right when the buds are coming out cool i'll have to try that have you ever hunted yeah, them in this in the fall i've seen them when i've been out deer hunting but i i have never gone grouse hunting you know i've never done a grouse hunt in the fall i have I, I want to. Um, I'm usually, you know, focused on fishing or big game hunting then. But I have friends who have reported seeing large numbers of grouse in the alpine in the fall, and that, so that's intriguing to me. I think that that would be a really unique hunt, but I, I haven't done that myself. And I wonder if they're cities or if they're ptarmigans or some other kind of uh, well, grouse. I've wondered that because. Most of the folks that have, have given me those reports are not hunters themselves, so I, they, they might have been ptarmigan, you know, likely ptarmigan. Some sort of chicken-like bird. 
By the way, mm-hmm. the only two grouse I have yet to hunt and eat are uh, the willow and the rock ptarmigan. You should come on up to uh, South Central, Hank. We'll we'll go out do some ptarmigan hunting. Uh, Apparently, you can kill them with Nalgene's. That's a bit of a stretch, but it's been uh, done. It has been been done. done. (laughs) I would argue those are probably white-tailed ptarmigan, which are um, notorious for being extremely approachable. It's Uh, possible, yeah. Rock and willow ptarmigan tend to flush a little bit more wild than a whitetail, but yes, that has been done. <laughs> the only uh, the only ptarmigan I've ever hunted were whitetails in Colorado, and and they did let us get close, but they weren't that tame. Mm-hmm. And by so the way, fun. if you ever want an actual, real, serious ptarmigan hunt, you come to Colorado. Like you start hunting them at thirteen thousand feet. That sounds pet brutal. <laughs> oh, it's it's basically goat hunting for for micro chickens. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> No, in terms of other hunting gear, you know, I use a, a lightweight compact 1022 with a six power scope, and I use kind of a moderate velocity hollow point ammo. You, you do need an accurate rifle, but it's it's also nice to have a compact rifle because you're often hand over hand crawling through brush. You know, it's uh, Having, you know, a compact rifle and a kind of a low-profile pack that doesn't snag on the brush is is pretty helpful. With a strap, no doubt, for the rifle. Absolutely. So I will tell you a little bit about hunting them for the rest of us. Uh, For the rest of us, you don't get to hunt in the spring. It's a a typical, if you've ever been on a a West Coast roughed grouse hunt or a Rockies or Uinta Mountain dusky hunt, it's very, very similar. You're hiking mountains. They're always in mountains, and it's typically dry. So that's you do hunt water there. And where I have found, I mean, concentrations is overselling it, but where I have found more than one, it's typically at an unknown little bit of water or a, a stream that's still running in September in California. The Seasons for cities are typically pretty short in Oregon, Washington, and California. And I know in California, the bag limit's very low. It's only two birds a day. Most people I know who are successful grouse hunters, and when by when I say that, they're typically not just shooting cities. They're sometimes shooting West Coast roughies as well, are up in... Mendocino and uh, the Humboldt area of California, and then the immediately north of there in Oregon, where there's way bigger densities than there are in the Sierra Nevada. So I'm not, and I know some people are like raising their eyebrow, like, oh, I bet you Hank's got a whole bunch of honey holes in the Sierra. He's just like, oh yeah, there's no grouse here, don't come here. But but no, I'm not, I'm not joking. I mean, there's just you could hunt, <laughs> you could hunt. I, if you guys came down and wanted to hunt city grouse where I live. I would be able to get you on grouse, but it might take three days, and we might only wow. see two. A much easier mountain quail hunt, and even then, we wouldn't shoot limits of mountain quail. So it sounds like grouse hunting there is sort of an esoteric hunt, you know? It's not a thing. Prob- yeah, there's there's probably a few few people that that are into it, right? Maybe if that. I don't know. I don't yeah. know a single person from California or Southern Oregon who's like, yes, I'm a grouse hunter. I mean, if you are, then that means you're traveling. And I mean, because I am a grouse hunter, but I don't do a lot of it by my house. We're quail hunters here. Let's move to my favorite topic, 
unlike some of the birds that I, I mean, we're, we're covering every upland animal that I can think of in this season of, of the podcast. And the last episode, which was about rails, while rails are good to eat, they're, I don't think anybody, even a, a dedicated rail hunter, would be like, they're my favorite bird ever to eat. <laughs> because chances are the rails that you've been hunting have been eating you know, crawfish or, or fiddler crabs or other kinds of marine inverts, which is great if you're a salmon, um, but not so great if you're a, if you're a, a mammal or a, or a bird. On the other hand, these grouse, both the sooties and the duskies, are arguably the best grouse of the entire clan in terms of birds to eat. I don't know if you guys would I, agree with that or not. I agree with that entirely. I think I think they have a lot going for them. The the lighter meat and then the size of the bird makes them easier to cook. And then they just have a, that wonderful mild flavor. It's a, it's a very mild game bird flavor. And um, so like I said, I I earlier I I pluck all of my birds and and I typically pluck them as soon as I kill them. And it just make the you know their their skin is thin. It's easy to tear. So they're, in my experience, they're easier to pluck, you know, right away when they're still warm. And I do save the gizzards. It is a fascinating thing that of all of the upland hunting, sooties may be your one chance to, because it's such a, a a delay in between birds typically, that that's your chance to pick a bird when it's still warm. Typically, mm-hmm. it, with every other upland hunt, you want the next bird, and then you think about processing birds later. Right. Exactly. Yeah, mm-hmm. I, I don't feel like I'm losing any opportunity when I when I take the time to pluck the bird. It doesn't take that long. And one thing that I find, uh, I mean, it's plus it's a trophy. It's a trophy bird. You know, I mean, mm-hmm. you're not going to shoot. Well, maybe you shoot five in one day, but then you know you pop open a bottle of champagne and just kick back and I don't know what because you're not going to shoot two days worth of lemons. Uh, <laughs> like, I don't know. It's probably been done by somebody. I was going to say there are definitely hunters out there that you know, really get after it and they get up in the mountains many times a week. And, but I think that's far more the exception than the rule. My experience, I mean, good hunters are in the Juneau area might shoot a limit twice, once or twice a season. You know, a typical day would be two to three birds, but once or twice a season, you'll, you'll get four or five birds. That's uh, cool. Yeah. So I I think the short answer on like how do you cook a sooty grouse is effectively any way you cook a chicken. I mean it's Mm. they're a light meat. Um, If you've shot duskies, they're virtually the same bird in the kitchen. And if you've only shot ruffed grouse, they're like a gigantic ruffed grouse. And if you've only shot pheasants, uh, they're a more flavorful pheasant. I think one – significant difference between say a pheasants and either the cities or the duskies would be uh the sinews in the drumsticks are not nearly as ferocious as they are in a pheasant i don't know if you've got shot pheasants or not but they're it's a, they're effectively wild turkeys so they have sinews in their bottom in their in their drumsticks that simply do not break down so you have to remove them in some way and and i've found that with the the these large western grouse they're there but they're not so bad that you can't really eat a uh, eat a drumstick if you roasted the whole bird. Mm-hmm. There's another right. trick um, that you that sometimes works and sometimes doesn't, but it's actually absolutely worth trying when you have one. So you've picked your bird. So when you go to the feet, 
use your shears or a knife and imagine the knee of the bird. So every bird has a, and I use knee loosely, a, a knee that has four points. It's like a box when you look at it. There's there's point, point on the drumstick side, and then there's a little gap, and then there's point, point on the foot side. If you run your knife in between those points to separate the drumstick from the leg, you will see lots and lots of tendons. Mm -hmm. So one trick that you can do, and again, it doesn't always work, is you bend the leg back and you spin the foot around three or four times to create effectively like a sinew rope. And then with one hand, you hold on for dear life to to the drumstick. And then you yank as hard as you can with your other hand the foot off the leg. And if you do that correctly, you don't lose any meat and you pull most, if not all, of the tendons out of the drumstick. Now, again, it doesn't work every time, but when it does, it's pretty cool because the other thing that happens when you roast any bird like this – by the way, this works with any upland bird. And it works with ducks too, but you typically don't have bad sinews in ducks. When you roast birds that that has been done – the drumstick curls up and you get this kind of lollipop effect uh, when it roasts and it's really cool to look at and it's and it's an easier to eat bite. Cool. Yeah, yeah. I'll have to try that. Yeah. Giblets are another good thing. Um, mm. Like dirty rice would probably be your gateway drug to uh, to eating grouse giblets or really any giblets. Hearts are good. I don't. I have not shot enough sooty grouse to know if the livers ever get light colored or they always very dark. Yeah. I, I don't think of them as being extremely dark, more of a, more of a pink color. Mm -hmm. I have, I have not eaten uh, livers myself, but um, I should try that though. If they are pink, they've, they're truly pink, like almost, you know, a white person's skin color. That -hmm. means they're holding fat much like a, so the chicken livers you buy in the store, they're holding fat. That's why they're that light. It's a process called steatosis that birds do, and I think people actually can do it too. This is why, like, you know, you, you know, rotten livers and people and everything. Um, <laughs> so yeah, yeah, no one would want to eat my liver. So, um, if you see those light-colored livers, consider using them because they're going to be a richer and a less irony and less livery flavor than like sometimes ducks get. It's almost the color of like a petite verdot, like a really dark red wine. Mm-hmm. So. So Forrest, tell me how you, how do you cook your gizzards? Well, it, it kind of depends on what I'm doing with the rest of the bird. Uh, one of my favorite ways to to cook grouse is I'll take the breasts off, and um, like if I have a bird that's maybe a little little shot up or something, and you know the skin's torn, I'll um, I'll take the breasts off, and with the the carcass the the frame I'll I'll just kind of simmer that, pull all the meat off, and make um, make kind of a stew with biscuits and with the breasts i'll slice oh, like, those into like strips. uh chicken and dumplings yeah chicken and dumplings right and then with the breasts i'll actually um do like a fried chicken batter and de- and fry those w- with some hot sauce and i'll fry the gizzards up with them um that's a good way to do to use the gizzards other times you know if i'm if i'm roasting a whole bird you know, I'll use pan drippings, make gravy, and, you know, just slice that gizzard up uh, that I've roasted with the bird 
and, and put that in the gravy. But um, other times I'll just fry it up in butter when I'm when I'm cooking the bird and and just eat that, you know, uh, as a little snack while I'm working in the kitchen. Fried gizzards are kind of hilarious. Like it's so they are. it's a thing, right, in two parts mm-hmm. of the country. So mm-hmm. you can go to gas stations in the south and get fried gizzards. And then there's like this gap. So you won't see them at all in the Midwest, really. I mean, occasionally you'll find a spot. You won't really see them in the kind of the Kansas-y, Texas-y area. And then it, it becomes a thing, or really a serious thing, in like Wyoming and Montana, where every little bar in some tiny town is going to have fried gizzards and red beer. And which and I, that is another one that freaks me out. Like, wait, how did you – wait, red beer? So that's a michelada, <laughs> and which is a big Mexican mm-hmm. thing, except it's – you know, the, the Montana version, as you might expect with, with you know, Montanans, isn't quite as spicy. And it's just a bizarre, like, where do these traditions pop up? Like, you you almost never see anybody serving fried gizzards in, say, Nevada or California or Oregon. It's just not a thing there. When you said Montana, Wyoming, you know, that's, you know, Rocky Mountain oysters. you got, you know, other sweet meats you know so there's a tradition there of of eating some of those organ meats and um i wouldn't say that i i don't know many people that that eat the organ meat from from birds here you know but um i think they're missing out (laughs) giblets are awesome how do you like to cook your uh your birds there rick oh well all the ways you guys are you're talking about uh i've even um, cooked them when i've been out in the field um or on a, on a hunting trip or something just over an open fire with a little bit of seasoning. And I mean, really that you can't, can't really go wrong just based on the, the type of meat it is. It's yeah. I mean, I've thrown the breast meat on the grill on a hot grill and, and grilled them really fast. Um, you really can't go wrong. Talk about food in every episode and I don't know, can you mess up a city grouse? I, I guess you could cook the heck out of it. But yeah, not, overcook it. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, be, you could overcook the breast and it'd be chalky, but that's just, that's mm-hmm. more technique. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Really, you know, like a, a pan roasted bird, you know, like you would do a whole roasted chicken. Man, that is a that's a beautiful meal. It's it's amazing. And it's so simple and easy. Do you brine your birds when you do that? I do. Yeah. About an eight yeah. overnight brine or just a couple hours? Oh, or? Overnight brine, you know, and if I've got you know, an apple or a pear, you know, in the kitchen, I'll slice that, put it in the brine, maybe uh, uh, peppercorns, um, maybe some, you know, whole allspice, you know, just, just something, you know, along those lines to add a little, an orange, you know, slice an orange. They have oranges uh, in Alaska? <laughs> yeah. And I'm looking at my back window and I've got an orange tree in my backyard. So, you know, that sounds nice. That's nice. <laughs> Here's a tip on those whole roasted birds. So after you brine them, and so by, incidentally, if you're listening to this and you don't know why you would brine a bird, uh, brining anything allows it to retain more moisture once it's cooked. So that's why you do this with very lean birds, because I've never seen a really fat grouse. I don't know if you guys have. Not really. No. No. Mm-mm. Yeah, they tend to be pretty lean. So the other trick after you brine them is sit them on a rack or sitting otherwise upright, uncovered in the refrigerator for a day. If you can do this, if you have the time, what it does is it dries out the skin 
because the refrigerator is fairly dry and, and cold enough to not hurt the meat at all. And then when you roast it, the skin gets crispy, crispy, crispy. Because the brine can sometimes hurt your ability to have crispy skin. And right. I can tell you the gr- single greatest thing, and this is, this is true of sooty grouse, this is true of duskies, pheasants, really every chicken-like bird. So if you're listening to this and you hunt any chicken-like bird, this includes jake turkeys as well. The skin, whether it's on the bird or not, crispy fried and then chopped up and put into tacos is the single greatest thing you're ever going to eat. You're oh, welcome. Sounds delicious. <laughs> Chicken skin yeah, tacos are a thing. And so as hunters, we can create that same effect with really any chicken-like bird. It's, it works really, really well. Yeah, I um. I'll bring my birds up to room temperature, you know, before I roast them, and and I'm trying to get that that drying effect, you know, to to help with the crisping. But you, um, you would want to do both. So if you do the yeah. the refrigerator dry, that dries them out, and then the the mm-hmm. the bringing them to room temperature is a very good point because mm-hmm. otherwise you can get this weird black and blue thing. And right. if you're looking for an interior temperature, for those of you who are temperature inclined, you want the breast to be about 150. 48, 45 when you pull it. So that sounds too cool, but it's not because it's going to it's gonna bump up another 5 to 7 degrees. And what that does is it will give you perfect breast meat, and then the meat of the, the legs and the thighs will be a little under but still okay. Your alternative is to pull the breast at 150 and no, no warmer than 155 because it's still going to carry up. And you get a kind of a better happy medium between breast meat that's not destroyed and leg and thigh meat that's still good if you pull at about 155. Do you do you um, start your oven at a, a very high temperature and then come off of that? Yes. For most of the yeah. <laughs> so, or I'll do the other. You know, you can do it either either way works. So you can either have the oven low. You know, I'm talking 300. And then wait for the breast to hit maybe 140, you know, so you've got a little bit of leeway. You pull the the bird out of the oven and then you jack that oven up to like a 500 degrees or however hot it goes. So, you know, your bird's out of the oven. um, So it's not experiencing that increase in the heat. So then when your oven resets to that high temperature, then you put it back in the oven to crisp the skin. So that technique I find to be better than high heat first because if you do that high heat first then you still pretty much have to take the bird out of the out of the oven because otherwise you have a you have a, you could face a problem if you're not watching it. That said, if you go high heat first and then drop the heat, if you're watching it, you can catch it before the the temperature gets too high. Either way works. Right. Okay. So last thing I want to go through before we we let you go is if a guy wanted to go grouse hunting, say you're listening to this in Missouri or, or Maine or, or Arizona, if a guy wanted to go grouse hunting in Alaska, how would you go about telling an out-of-stater to do it? Oh, boy. I, I mean, from my perspective, this is a, a critter that is a great opportunity for sort of a DIY hunt. I think the, the hardest thing is just the the physicality of the hunt is challenging. I think that's probably the, one of the single biggest challenges from my estimation. Like I said earlier, it's, you know, this is a, this is a bird that demands a a certain degree of um, physical sort of prowess in terms of getting 
negotiating the landscape to get close enough to the bird for a shot. But, uh, you know, I mean, shoot, you can fly to almost any major community in southeast Alaska, Juneau, Petersburg, Ketchikan, rent a vehicle. Um, most of these communities have hotels you can stay in. And really, you know, you can stop into your local fish and game office and ask about access, road access, most of which is wide open. The Forest Service, um, U.S. Forest Service has jurisdiction over most of the lands in southeast Alaska. And as a result, most of those roads that they create are open for public access. They also do a great job of creating trails, hiking trails in many of these communities. So it affords really good access into the backcountry. And then it just comes down to, you know, kind of like what Forrest was talking about, how you just start early in the morning, get up, get out in the trail system and just start listening for birds, knowing that they're going to be up near that tree line zone that he was identifying. You know, typically in southeast Alaska, that's between 1500 feet and maybe 2000 feet. Um, And knowing that you're likely going to have to hike up out of the valley bottom to get up to those birds. But you know, this, and from my opinion, I think this is a, a pretty uh, great opportunity for people to travel to Alaska, kind of have a unique adventure on their own, and really have a reasonable chance of success. I think the big thing, like I said, is just the physicality that these birds demand. What about bears? Yeah. Do you have to worry about bears? The, the, yeah, there there are bears around in, in all the areas uh, where you're, you're city grouse hunting. Um, I've never run into any bears when i've been out hunting but i've seen, certainly seen bear tracks and bear sign and on the here on the say for example in the juno area on the mainland we have both black and brown bears but then if you move out say to admiralty island the nearby island um, we have there's just brown bears there so you, you could you could see either depending on on where you're hunting people from the lower 48 worry about bears the way that I have found Alaskans to worry about sharks. Like our mutual friend Tyson is deathly right. afraid of sharks when I've lived right. around sharks my whole life. And I'm deathly afraid of grizzly bears. And he's like, ah, they're fine. Yeah. I mean, uh, you know, if you could carry some bear spray, you know, uh, if, you know, if, if a person had concerns about bears, uh, bear spray or a more powerful firearm than you would use for city grouse, uh, as bear protection. But really, um, you know, the odds of, of having a, an adverse encounter with a bear when you're out grouse hunting are pretty low. I agree with Rick. I mean, this this is a great hunt for a person who wanted to come up and, you know, experience small game hunting in Alaska. The access is, is good. I think, the you know, one of the biggest challenges yeah, is certainly the terrain, the weather, just being prepared for those, those colder, uh, wet, environment that we have here and and the challenging terrain i mean it can i've i've gotten myself into some spots grouse hunting where i was quite concerned about my safety (laughs) you can get into some really steep cliff terrain quickly crazy yeah what was when's the time period when would people think about coming well i'll typically um do my first hunt or, you know, around the end of March. And I usually never hear a bird then, uh, but I'll, I always go just to see what's going on. Get, you know, start, start getting out in the woods. Uh, I typically will start hearing birds in early April and have my best hunting the last week of April, first week of May. 
Uh, and then the course of season ends May 15th. Gotcha. The other thing that a person could do is is combine a grouse hunt with a steelhead trip in southeast. Ah, steelies. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so we have have good steelhead fishing uh, in many of the areas where you'd be uh, grouse hunting near, nearby anyway. That is a cool combo. It's a really interesting species, and it's super fun to hunt. Yeah, it's it's one of my favorites here in Alaska. You know, and the, the other cool, cool thing about Juneau, the Juneau area is that, and you know, you've been a part in the Taku Inlet, right, Hank? You've oh, been yeah. out there with Ty, Tyson. Yeah, so so in the Taku River drainage, uh, there's also rough grouse there. <laughs> and uh, it, it, there is a, an area there where city grouse and rough grouse overlap, which uh, to me is, is pretty fascinating that that happens in Alaska. You know, that's a, a unique occurrence. I mean, it might happen, you know, in the Stikine drainage down by Petersburg as well, but that's a that's a pretty cool little habitat niche. Yeah, especially in the spring. I mean, they, they overlap a lot in Oregon, Washington, and Northern California. Mm-hmm. Well, cool. You got me yeah. psyched to go out there and, uh, and chase hooters. Hit me up next time you're, you're in Juneau. All right. Thank you guys for being on the podcast. I will put a lot of extensive things in the show notes, you know, links to recipes and, and the Alaska Department of Fishing Game pages about the grouse and licensing information and and all kinds of just general bird nerdetry. Yeah, and I might add, too, just really quickly, uh, if it's all right, I just, you know, being the small game program coordinator, I, I get a lot of calls from hunters and by all means, uh, you know, if, if folks are listening to this and are intrigued or, or intrigued about other upland bird opportunities here in Alaska, by all means, you know, give, give me a shout. Um, that's, that's why we're here is to help hunters and to help regulate the, the populations. So, uh, I always love chatting with folks about hunting and, um, getting them, you know, squared away on their dream trip if that's something that they're trying to do. So, yeah. Absolutely. Should I leave their uh, Should I leave your email address on the uh, in the show notes? Uh, yeah, you can leave my email or my work phone number. Absolutely. Right. I will do that. Great. Take it easy, guys, and thanks for being on the Hunt Gather Talk podcast. Thanks. Thanks, Hank. That's it for another episode of the Hunt Gather Talk podcast, sponsored by Filson and Hunt to Eat. I'm your host, Hank Shaw, and I wanted to ask a favor of you. We are trying to spread the word about the Hunt Gather Talk podcast, and I need your help to do that. Hopefully you've enjoyed what you've heard so far, and I am wondering if you guys can help spread the word by sharing and spreading the word about this podcast through social media and any other means that you think might get somebody who is interested in hearing about what we're talking about to know about the show. Word of mouth is super important. It helps me a lot. And the other thing that does help, believe it or not, it helps more than you might think, is to leave a review of the podcast on whatever platform that you listen to the podcast from. So iTunes or Stitcher or Spotify or anything like that. Those reviews help a lot. Again, I'm Hank, and you can always find me on social media at HuntGatherCook on Instagram, on my website, which is HunterAnglerGardenerCook.com that you can find that on hunttogathercook.com. And I also run a private Facebook group called Hunt Gather Cook. Let me know that you listen to the podcast and I will let you in. Once again, thanks a lot for all your help spreading the word about the podcast. It helps a lot. And I will talk to you in a little bit with another episode on another upland bird that we can find here in North America. Thank you. Thank you so much for listening. And I'll talk to you soon. Bye.